You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Heather Augustine is an audio engineer currently touring around the U.S. with Broadway-style shows. She graduated from Penn State University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theatrical Design and Technology with an emphasis on sound design and has been on the road for the past eight years. During her touring career, she has worked on a variety of shows, including Billy Elliot, Dirty Dancing, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, and Miss Saigon. Currently, she's the A1 for the first national tour of Mean Girls. Welcome, Heather. Hi. So good to be here. Thank you. You're joining just Katie today, but we're going to have a grand old time, I'd say. It's going to be great. Let's go back to the beginning, like just a little tidbits about how you got into this whole gig. I found theater because of the show Les Mis. So it was a lot of fun to be able to do that tour later on when I got the chance. But back when I was in middle school, our high school did a production of Les Mis that I went to see and just fell in love with it on the spot, especially because since it's a high school and there are far more girls than guys, they actually cast a woman to play Javert. And I just love that, especially I was in that very, like, I'm super independent. I just want to go out on my own, do that whole thing. Like, I don't need a man, any of that stuff. (laughs) And so especially seeing that on stage and seeing a woman who was in a typically male role was like, ooh, I like this. Mm -hmm. I want to do this. I want to be in a place where you can do this type of thing. And gender doesn't matter. Like, you can... Javert is not a romantic or sexual character, so you're kind of like, literally anyone could play this. Why isn't this more of a thing? Right. Um, When I was in high school, I started on more of the acting route and then was like, this is fun. I enjoy this. Would never be able to do this for a career. And... Again, because especially, well, in all theater, uh, there's more women than men. As a freshman, I didn't get cast in anything. So I started doing tech stuff and like it was for the plays you did where you had a CD player and you just hit go on the music or whatever the owl hoot was or the doorbell ring and that kind of right. stuff. <laughs> and then when we got to the musicals, it was like, so you've, you've pushed a play button before. Here's a console. Have fun. Still didn't know what I was doing. But and then that just kind of continued on and going to college was like, well, I I do sound. I guess I should major in that. I really like doing theater. I want to do that. And then just continued on. It seems like pretty much everyone in sound just randomly falls into it at some point. That's the story. But I love that. It's like it always starts with like, I want to be a musician or like the acting thing. And then it's like, wait, what's this techie thing? And then it's like, ooh. Yeah. And then someone (laughs) just drops you into it and you're like, this is fun. So what kind of uh, piqued my interest was um, your gig at age 16 mm. as the audio operator at the San Antonio <laughs> SeaWorld Park. Yes. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. So that was my first job. And that was another one of those things where it's like, well, I mostly do audio in school, so I guess I should do audio. And so SeaWorld has a bunch of different parks. Obviously, there's the Shamu show. And I was on the only non-aquatic show. We were in an amphitheater where we did a pet show. So we had everything from dogs to cats. We had a macaw. There were emus. We had a teacup pig. And it was this Western-themed show where all these animals doing different tricks and things like that. So I got really good at sound effects on those shows because... Of course, it's a Western show. There were a little row of cacti that the dogs would do a weave through. So you had a little like whoop, whoop, whoop every single time it went through a cactus. Right. It works out really well 
now in my career because I have a much easier time with sound effects because I spent, I think I spent four years at SeaWorld and most of what you're doing is music playback. So that's just canned stuff. Uh, we did have some singers, which was a lot of fun to get to do that. But most of it is just sound effects and doing all that stuff. Right. Well, I mean, that's good. That's a good way to start, though, that it's like, mm-hmm. wow. OK, like I worked at Panera Bread when I was 16. So it's like you're blowing my mind. <laughs> like, it's such a tough gig to, you know. It was so lucky, though, because had I not lived here in San Antonio or around because um, I'm originally from one of the suburbs way outside of Chicago. And then we lived in Connecticut for a little bit before moving down to San Antonio. So it's thinking of either of those places. I was nowhere near a theme park that wouldn't have been an option. So this was actually a really good way of like we had a pre-show where you had a bunch of cowboys. Like there was one guy with a washboard and they did all the Texas songs like Deep in the Heart of Texas and Rose of San Antonio and all of those. So it was fun because I got to do a little bit of mixing where vocals and canned tracks. Right. It was just that little taste of like, okay, cool. Like, this is fun. I enjoy this. I love that. So when you kind of started in school, did you find that school really kind of well prepared you for the industry? Yes, because in high school, most training per se was cool. Here's the board. Plug this in. And going into college, like, I didn't know what an XLR was called. I knew that you plugged it into the back of the board and then somehow sound magically happened. And then SeaWorld is very much designed for you sit a person at the board, you say, push this button, move this fader, hit these keys. This is all you need to do. So it wasn't a whole lot of loading shows in or out and things like that. So getting to school was great because um, we usually did a play and a musical each semester, and then there might be some small little projects like directing projects or things like that here and there. But it was kind of, you had the people who were assigned to the shows as the designer or the mixer or the board op or whatever. And then it was kind of cool. Everybody else is going to help load this in. And we got a new console in our theater my freshman year there. It was a Yamaha PM1D. This is going to date me a little bit. Uh, (laughs) So we ran, I think, a solid mile of SCSI cable to get everything connected with all the racks and all of that stuff. So it was a lot of like running cable, hanging speakers. And we were very lucky because uh, so my professor, Curtis Craig, he was very good about making sure that we had good resources. Like we used uh, D&B and Meyer gear and we had good gear to work with. Like it might be a small amount of gear as he built onto the inventory. But it taught a lot about cool. Like these are the things you have. Make it work. Right. So after I graduated doing um, some freelancing stuff around Dallas and things like that, they'd be cool. Like, so our budget is nothing. Here's the speakers we have. And this is what we're working with. And kind of sit there and be like, okay, cool. Like, I've done this all through college. We can make this work. It's all about problem solving and, you know, budget friendly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because different venues have different setups and different equipment, I suppose. Yes. uh, Because on a tour, we'll travel with kind of a core component of we've got towers, we've got a center cluster. We'll tour with speakers for um, an under balcony system. We have some side fills and stuff like that. But for most venues, they'll have Like if the balcony is really deep, they might have some speakers up there for delays and things like that. Or they might have additional rings of underbalk speakers that we can tie into. Um, So you hope that the venue knows like, oh, so these are weird places that most tours don't have things to cover. So we have stuff to cover. Not always the case, but you kind of hope. Right. (laughs) And again, on tour where you sit there and go like, okay, this is my core component of things. And I have to cover 
anywhere from 1,800 seats to 3,000 seats. And you kind of sit there and go like, cool, we'll make this work. It'll be fine. It'll be great. It's a good attitude to have. I imagine tough to foster initially, like when you feel like you're bad at it. And I really want to talk about that because you wrote this excellent article about like imposter syndrome and moving from like an Mm -hmm. assistant to an A1. Yeah, it's I. So I've always loved touring. I've always loved sound, but especially at the beginning of your career, like in college, I just sat there and it's like, oh, I'm going to be unstoppable. Like I'm learning all this stuff. It's great. And then got into the real world. And again, like I love touring. I had a great time on the shows, but there were so many times where I just sat there and was like, I feel like an idiot. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And it's very hard to move out of that mindset, especially because it just sits there. You sit there with that voice in your head that's telling you like, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have a clue. Like, what are you even doing here? And I would get caught in this loop of, well, I suck at my job, so I should leave and go find something else, but I'd probably be bad at anything else, so I should just stay here, but I suck at my job, so I should find some. And you just sit there in this loop and go like, you keep throwing stuff at the wall and just see what sticks. And for me, what ended up sticking was transitioning from being an A2 to an A1. So even though I was well-prepared leaving college, I still very much benefited from being an assistant when I first started out on touring because the A1 that I toured with, he was actually um, a Penn Stater as well. It was nice to have that familiarity of like, okay, this is someone that I've worked with for the majority of my college. He knows what my skill set is. He's been my mentor and helped foster a lot of that skill set. So he and I toured together for about four years. And then I reached the point where I was like, cool, I'm ready to go out on my own, especially in that imposter syndrome realm. I was like, I don't feel like I'm learning anything new. I feel like I'm stagnating. It's time to try something new. And that was almost my Hail Mary pass of... If I don't like being an A1, then we'll figure out if I just have to leave sound entirely. It's right. wow. <laughs> yeah. So the tour of Les Mis going out was on the horizon. And I'd worked with that design team on Phantom, which was the last show I did as an A2. And then before that on Wizard of Oz. Obviously, I, Les Mis has a very special place in my heart. So I was like, I want that show. Not as an A2, but as an A1. Like, I I want that to be my baby. Right. And I knew if I wanted to be an A1 on a show of that size, I was like, cool. So we're going to have to step out of that comfort zone and get some A1 experience that will let me do that show and actually function a little bit better. That was kind of the kick in the butt, too. Uh, so I emailed our production manager, and he was very sweet. So it's always helpful to have those people that support you. And so I sent him an email saying like, hey, I'd like to look at being an A1 for the next season. And he sent me back an email being like, oh yeah, I love that idea. That's great. So you have that moment of like, okay, he doesn't think I'm going to fail miserably right out of the gate. This is a good sign. Step one, yeah. Yeah, just just having even that little bit of positive reinforcement was something like, okay, cool. We can breathe a little bit. And then I love mixing. So being an A1 worked very well for me. So Josh, who was the A1 that I toured with as his A2, He set me up very well for getting paperwork and stuff ready for venues because I'll do an advance sheet that I kind of learned from him how to do. And it just sits there and says like, okay, this is where we're going to put the racks. This is any special stuff we have to do with equipment. Like if it's a large house and we'll need an extra ring of underbelks, we have to do a delay truss. We can't do a delay truss. There's no room on stage. The racks are going to go out in the house, down in the basement, somewhere random, up a hallway. Who knows? Um, So just... (laughs) I was good at having that organizational sense of at least walking in with a plan. Right. That helped a lot with my imposter syndrome because you force yourself into a proactive position of, okay, 
I'm the one running the department. I have to be on top of things. I have to make these decisions. And thankfully, the majority of my decisions worked out well. And so every time you make that decision and things work out, you sit there and go, okay, cool. Like this is validation that I have a clue that I'm on the right track. When I was an assistant, it was very much focused on troubleshooting and um, talking to my A1 about like what he would prefer. Mm -hmm. So I was in a little bit more of a passive position there. And also Josh is super good with gear and all of that kind of stuff. So I always felt like I fell short in that particular skill set because he could mm -hmm. troubleshoot something so much faster than I could. But then getting out on my own, I realized like, oh, I can figure this out. Like maybe it takes me a couple seconds longer, but I'm still functioning. I'm still figuring out these problems quickly. Another part of that is removing that crutch that you thought you had for a while and being like, okay, cool. I can stand on my own two feet. I can make progress on my own. And especially working with um, my E2s and stuff like that, like, oh, I can help her here, here, and here with these things that I've learned on the road. So that was an interesting thing for me to say, I have learned things. I have come a fair amount of distance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it's a very slow process to get out of imposter syndrome. And you never really do. But at the same time, you make slow steps and you reach the point where you're like, okay, I'm cool. Like, even if I don't know, we'll figure it out. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just that your article, uh, what was the exact title? Because I really want to recommend that. Uh, I think it was Practicing Proactivity. Practicing Proactivity, yes. yeah, on the Sound Girls website. It's really good, really resonated. Um, when you're kind of moving in the positive direction of like positive reinforcement, yes, I can do this. Are there like moments of just magnificent setbacks where you're like, I'm such a dope. Oh, what a huge absolutely. mistake. <laughs> absolutely. Because every time you try something, you're like, I'm either going to fall flat on my face or it's going to be fine. And there is no in between. Right. <laughs> like there's some gear that you're not familiar with. And for sound on tour, you typically have a rigger who is going to get your motors ready and things like that. But a lot of the actual rigging, like speakers on truss and things like that, putting that on, you do that yourself. And so I would be very much like, hi, I'm not a rigger. At least for the first couple times, I would like you to look at everything I put on there. Just to be sure, because this is over people's heads. And I don't want that on my conscience. Just no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, we also had like, there's some really long days on tour. And um, one of the ones we had was on Les Mis. We were going from Seattle to Portland. And Seattle has... Um, an elevator that will go from truck dock level to the stage level. So you can only put a limited amount of things on the elevator to get either to or from the truck. So loadout takes a little bit longer, and that's just a thing. And then we had the three-hour drive from Seattle to Portland, which is basically the only sleep that any of us got. And so we walked Ooh. into the Portland venue, and that was another thing with rigging where I walked up to the head audio and was like, I've had three hours of sleep. I want you to double-check every single thing that I put my hands on rigging-wise before it goes out and double-check me. I will not be offended. I will be very happy, and I am specifically asking you to do this. <laughs> For the safety of everybody yeah, here. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's something where most of the rigging is fine. A lot of it is static, so it doesn't change, and it's just kind of like, okay, check the shackle, make sure that nothing's... But it was just the, right. like, I will feel so much better about my life. But yeah, and it's a lot of those noticing your weaknesses and saying like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to talk with other people about troubleshooting stuff. Like, especially when you, where you interface lighting and sound things and be like, cool. Like I don't understand that much about your lighting system. So talk with me. What do I need to do? What can I do to help you? But yeah, you have, you have times where you try something and you're just like, oh, that didn't work. So on Mean Girls, 
we have a remote drum booth. So he usually gets put in a dressing room or something like that. And I had three venues in a row before the pandemic hit and we all went home for a little bit. Right. Where I just made a completely wrong call about where to put him. It was, we had one place where the cable was an extra hundred feet that we had to run. And the house head was like, yeah, it would have been super easy if we just put him in this room here and not that room way down right. there. <laughs> just way yeah. closer. Yeah. So yeah, it's, a lot of it is just being like, that didn't work out. We're going to move on and figure out something else. But being nice to yourself is a very big thing, especially... And that that's especially hard when you're dealing with your imposter syndrome and you're so hardwired to harp on every single mistake. Right. So sound is a weird hybrid world where we set up the pit, but the instruments in the pit are technically their instruments. Like we don't tune the string instruments. Right. We don't mess around with percussion. We um, And keyboards are that interesting middle ground because... Technically, we don't mess with the keyboards. If they're not working, that's the keyboardist's problem. But right. since our stuff is so closely interfaced with what's going on, we usually help. But that was a lot of times where I would just be banging my head, mentally banging my head against a wall, being like, I don't know what's going on here. I have no idea. And every problem seems to be a new one. It doesn't seem like, <laughs> okay, you learn, it does some funky thing. And then the next time it's like, oh, no, this is something completely different. So those were a lot of times where I would beat myself up a lot for like, because musicians aren't called until show call, basically. A lot of them will come in 15 minutes before. Some people just slide into their seat a couple minutes before the downbeat. Whoa. And then, yeah, so we've had, to, where we've had to do, um, on Les Mis, we had to do a mid-show keyboard swap out because coffee had spilled on the keyboard the night before, had gotten into the keys and made them gummy. And so you have those things where it's like, You'd figure that out if maybe you were there 10 minutes ahead of time playing around. But if you just slide right in, then that was a lot of what I would beat myself about. Like, if I couldn't figure out a troubleshooting thing, I would sit there and be like, oh, like, I'm horrible. I suck at this. I will never be any good. This is awful. And then after a while, you realize and be like, cool, we learned not everyone's strength lies in the same place. Like, it's fine. You'll be okay. It's like um, when you get to a place where you have a little understanding for yourself and also that you're working like wherever your weakness lies, you have someone to talk to whose strength lies in that yes. place and you kind of come together. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess I wanted to ask about the interpersonal kind of nature of this thing. There's a lot of teamwork, it seems. Yes. Do you feel generally supported by the other teams, like the lighting team, because I guess light and sound come together and all that? Most of the time, yes. Unfortunately, sound people have kind of a reputation of being not very socially competent and sometimes <laughs> very egotistical. Right. I would like to think that I'm not quite in that realm. You um, don't seem like that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm delightful. What are you talking about? You are. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, usually lighting and sound have to work together a fair amount because like we have stuff on their trusses. We interface with MIDI and things like that. So also, um, in IATSE, the stagehand union, um, sound is technically a subset of electrics. Oh. In old locals like uh, Philly, New York, um, those kind of places, you still have where the head electrician is technically over the sound head. But most venues have just kind of been like, cool, it's their own thing. My view is like, you don't want me running a follow spot. I don't want the lighting board up mixing a show. Right. These are two separate things. So most of the time on the road, within the different departments, especially loading in and loading out, it becomes a choreographed dance of, great, I can work on this project while you're working over here, and then we'll swap so we're not getting in each other's way. 
And then it's being nice to the carpenters, so they actually pay attention to where my cables are on the set and don't accidentally (laughs) clip them or anything. And then just in a department, good communication is definitely something. And just being able to count on people is such a big thing because I know as an A1, there's a completely different feeling being out in front of house with an A2 that you can trust backstage. Right. I've been very lucky where the A2s that I have worked with have been fantastic. And they've all been very good about being very proactive in fixing problems. And uh, Mark and I, we were kind of a, a special case on Les Mis because we had worked together beforehand. And this was probably like six years before we had done a summer festival together. So it was kind of a fun thing for him to be my A2 uh, when we got to Les Mis because we knew that we got along, we knew that we liked each other, and so we just kind of hit the ground running. And he and I have that very yin-yang, both personality and skill set type things, where he's very technical. I'm more on the artistic side. Like, I'm good at mixing. I'm good at making sure the show sounds good. I'm good at the logistics of getting systems in and out. And he's the one that can take care of things when chaos reigns backstage. Well, speaking of the creativity involved in this job, because I noticed you have a background in the sound design when you were doing schooling as well, mm-hmm. but there is an official sound designer uh, with a show, right? Yes. Can you tell me about that, how they maybe set a certain scheme and how you in- incorporate your own creativity into the work you're doing? On the sound team you have, the sound designer is the head of everything. They're in charge of specifying uh, what kind of system they want. So like speakers, console, mics, they're basically the interface with the directors and the music director and the conductor and to figure out kind of what the overall scheme of the show is supposed to sound like, like what the what the director wants for it. Because you had um, like Phantom, Les Mis and Saigon were all with the same designer and largely the similar directing teams. Um, And that was very much where the sound design was supposed to be very transparent. Like you're not even supposed to hear that there is a sound system there. It's supposed to sound like it's coming from the stage. It's supposed to be very natural. So figuring out that that's the direction you want to go with, as opposed to Mean Girls and Dirty Dancing and things like that, where it's kind of like, this is about the music. This is about having fun. It can be a little bit more in your face. We're not trying to hide the fact that we have speakers here. So you have that realm. And the sound designer is in charge of all of that. And is the one kind of talking to the mixer and being like, cool, like we want a little bit more of this. We want a little bit more of that. And um, if they have specific preferences on like reverbs, um, I've worked with the um, Digico SD7 the entire time I've been on tour. It's been a kind of a lucky pick that all the designers that I've worked with, they've all liked the SD7. Mm. But nobody seems to use the onboard sound effects for those like reverb and delays and that kind of stuff. So it usually has some type of outboarding, either um, like Waves or TC Electronic or something like that. So they're the ones who are kind of like, okay, cool. Like I'd rather use this effects package instead of the one on the console or the one from this other manufacturer or things like that. And then they also have an associate or an assistant. And the associate and the assistant kind of do the same job. The difference is, is that the associate has autonomy. And if the designer's not there, they can act on behalf of the sound designer without consulting them. But an assistant would have to consult the sound designer before making any changes or something like that. Right. And so they're a little bit more involved with the day-to-day things. Um, Like on tour, the associate, he's the one that when I was first starting out and uh, we have like speaker prediction software, which is one of the things that I would do to prep going to a venue. So for the first couple moves, I would send those to him and be like, cool, like, does this look good for what's happening here? And he would say, like, okay, yeah, either that works or maybe, like, let's adjust this a bit here and here. 
he was the one who kind of stuck with me and did some of that basic training of these are the things you need to know. This is what we're looking for. And then once he felt comfortable that I knew what I was doing, he was like, okay, cool. Like I'll check in if you need me to, but move on, do your thing. And then you also have a production audio who's in charge of taking whatever the designer wants system-wise and making that a reality. So that's saying, okay, we have these speakers, we have this, we need X cables and these different power supplies, and we need these racks and all of that to put it all together to make it a functional system. And then you get to the show and you have the A1 me and then the A2. And so my job as the A1 is basically saying like, okay, cool, this is how you want it to sound as the sound designer. I'm going to sit in front of the board and push faders until it theoretically sounds like that. Right. So I have a little bit of, I wouldn't say creative control, but I have a little bit of leeway in the fact that how I get from the theoretical design to the actual physical output of the system is mine to deal with however I need to, where I'm the one who programmed the console. Um, For Mean Girls, we use the bass from the Broadway show since that was the show I trained on, so I was familiar with that layout. And also, most consoles, you'll just leave however the designer wants for the major layout, like where all the faders go, especially on digital things, so that they're not trying to figure out whatever your preference is when they come in. Like, they just want to go hit the button to get to whatever page they want, make the adjustment, and move away. Right. So you have some things like that where the basic layout of any system is the designer's. And then for the mixer, my job is to take whatever the design is, and then especially on tour, replicate it as closely as possible in each venue. And then within the show, it's kind of up to me to do like, okay, cool. Like these are where band pushes need to happen. This is who should be leading in this song. And then you'll also have the designer who says like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, this worked, but like we're missing this instrument here in this part. Lemos has a lot of just people singing over each other. <laughs> so sometimes spent with the associate there where I was just saying like, who am I supposed to be hearing? I want to make sure that I know who's supposed to be going where, especially for a brand new show that hasn't been in production before. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit more leeway of saying like, okay, cool. Like, oh, I like how this sounds with this person here with Lemos and Saigon and Phantom. It's like, oh, these are all 30 something years old. You're kind of sitting there being like, you know what you want. Tell me what you want. Because that's the biggest thing is if the designer's happy, that's great. Have you had an experience where you're sensing the designer maybe isn't happy that you've gotten kind of feedback where you're like, Ur. Um, I haven't had too many of those. I did have um, one of my favorite moments from Mean Girls Tech was there's a sound effect where uh, there's a Katie scream and into a sound change where she does this big no and it's actually a sound effect that continues on. And we had been working on the scene beforehand and we skipped into the scene after. And I had been very careful about like, okay, cool. Like I'm not hitting the sound effect. I'm not triggering this. I am very much. And somehow in my head, I know I selected the scene that it was supposed to be in and not the sound effect. But as we're getting set up to go to the to the next scene and everyone's getting set, hit the go button, the sound effect went off and it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, Brian Rona, the designer, he just kind of ambles over, just looks at the console. He's like, so what did we learn? <laughs> that is the nicest way I have ever heard anyone say, what did you do? <laughs> right. But it was just like non-judgmental, very like, what did we learn? I appreciate that very much because that's just like, I'm not mad. 
I'm just curious. Do you know what you did or do we have to have a conversation about <laughs> not firing loud sound effects when you're not supposed to? Yeah, I like that. I think I'd respond well to that because I usually would crumble if anyone says anything to me ever. Yeah. And the, and the biggest part about mixing and taking criticism is understanding that people want you to succeed. They're telling you this so that you can mix a better show. And that's been something that I've tried to internalize as much as possible, just saying that this is not about me as a mixer. This is about them trying to give me the tools to improve. Right. In this career, is it a natural progression to go like, okay, school, A2, A1? Or can you literally just go right into being an A1? For some people, that is. Like for me, that that was a progression that I need to do. Um, so Josh, the A1 that I toured with, he left school and immediately went into being an A1. Hmm. He was an A2 for a little bit on um, Phantom before he moved up to A1 and then I came on as his A2. Right. That just not did not suit his personality well. He likes to be in charge. He likes to be in control. Like that's, he's very good at saying like, great, I am the head of this department. The buck stops with me. I'm here to orchestrate all of this. So you have some people who very much have that personality. I would say that I'm in the beta category where I can absolutely take charge if I have to. However, if you ever told me like, great, someone else is going to be the head of the department. You just have to mix eight shows a week. I would say, yes, done. Dream job right there. Call me anytime you need. So it depends. So like I did fine as an A2 because I didn't mind, especially as I was learning. I don't mind being an assistant. And you have some people like Mark is a very good example of this. He's the A2 on one of the Hamilton tours now. And he's chosen a career as an A2. And that's something where it's like, you need people like him who have that skill set, who enjoy that job, not just like me, who are kind of like, cool, this is a stepping stone into the next thing. Right. But at the same time, it's helpful as an A1 to have done both jobs, to know what the logistics are happening backstage. And if somebody's yelling at you to say, like, you need to swap out this mic now to be like, they are literally off stage for five seconds. They are wearing five different layers of costumes. I will do what I can. Right. A lot of times you have that people will transition from being an A1 to an associate and then from an associate to a designer. So you have kind of this hierarchy that bumps people up. I have known people who are just like, I should have stayed as a mixer. Like, I I don't enjoy designing as much as I enjoy mixing. And right. I'm one of those people that... So I technically have a degree in sound design and technology mm-hmm. or in theatrical design and technology. And in, within that is sound design. I hate designing. I have no passion for it at all. The only show I enjoyed um, was my sophomore year, we did Schoolhouse Rock. Mm. So I just got to sit there with... And again, like, this is going back to my background in SeaWorld doing sound effects. I just got to sit there with all of these sound effects and play with all this stuff. And that was fun. Right. But all the other shows that I did, I would just trying not to scoop my eyes out with a spoon because that would have been less painful than me sitting in the house being like, I am bored. So design is never on, I don't think will ever be on the horizon for me. And it's, it's a little bit validating for some of those people who say like, if you really enjoy mixing, probably just stay with mixing. But you do have some where that's kind of the progression. Mm. And I would say to a point, if you have um, people who are really good A2s and very technical, they might step into doing that production role where they're the ones fitting all the system components together and making sure that works and things like that. So you have a couple different trajectories based on whether you have more of a technical skill set or an artistic skill set. And that's not to say that a technical skill set can't make a really good designer because 
I think probably the benefit of being a designer is you can say like, cool, these are my skill sets. I'm going to get an associate and an assistant or, or production person who fills in the gaps in those. Like right. if I'm not a very technical person, I can get a really good production person. If I'm more of a technical person, I can get a really good associate who's good with filling in kind of the artistic gaps. So mm. you usually end up somewhere on that spectrum. I will say for touring, it brings you very much towards center because it's like, cool, you still have to have some technical knowledge of how to make things work when things fall apart. But at the same time, you still have to be able to bridge that design of saying, okay, like this is where the speaker should go. This is where they should be pointing to technically cover everything. And then this is how we need it to sound. So yeah, it's, I enjoy touring because it has that little blend of both worlds that even though I'm not as strong in my technical skills, I still know enough that I can get by. And for anyone who's had like a purely artistic career, I'm sure I seem light years ahead of them, just as the super technical people seem light years ahead of me on that. I like that. There's a spot for everybody, it seems. Absolutely. Can we talk about your involvement with Sound Girls? Uh, What motivated that and some of the things you've written? So we're going to go back to Mark again for a hot second. (laughs) Um, So when we were on Les Mis, he basically sent my information to Sound Girls and said, hey, my boss is a super awesome woman. You should interview her. And so they did an interview with me. And then I want to say it was about a year later, they were doing a call for bloggers, people to volunteer to be bloggers. And I've always enjoyed writing, but hadn't done almost any of that since I left school because why? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, oh, like this will be fun. And that was, that was actually kind of, the final step out of the bigger part of my imposter syndrome was that saying like, okay, cool. Like I feel like I actually have enough knowledge and experience that I can try to give that back to some other people and maybe help them from not falling into the pitfalls that I stepped into hook, line and sinker. So started blogging for them. And that's really been my sanity over the course of the pandemic because I've had that project and also um, doing some of their mentoring. And I did um, an Ask the Experts session on mixing for theater and things like that. So I very much enjoyed contributing to them because they have also kept me sane and given me a foot still in the theater world and the sound world, even when the pandemic has been raging and there hasn't been any theater or sound going on for a while. Right. I'm assuming most people know a fair amount of sound girls if they're listening to the podcast. But if you don't, join. It's awesome. Yeah, this is a sweet resource. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I was really enjoying your articles. So I highly recommend uh, everyone checking out Heather Augustine's um, articles. So right now you're not working. Like how is COVID working with getting back into it? Or what's the scenario? I'm currently at home. Um, My family lives in the Dallas area now. Um, When I was in college, they all moved up here. So I've been, I'm at home with Dallas. So I'm, I'm with not quite PC considered tour homeless, where I'm on the road for 45 to 50 weeks out of the year. So my mailing address is technically my parents' address. And so when the pandemic hit, everyone was like, oh, like we've got three weeks canceled. We'll be back in a little bit. Like it's going to be a vacation. Just go away for a little bit and then we'll come back. So it's like, okay, cool. I'll go home. I'll see my family. I'll enjoy that. And then stay at home orders happened and everything just keeps going. So I've been the one to joke most about it because it helps me feel better about myself, about being the 30-year-old living in my parents' attic. But yeah, so it's, I've become my parents' uh, live-in cook and dishwasher. And um, it's been really nice because I've been able to do um, some stuff with the current Penn State students. I've been able to go back towards the end of last semester and then um, this past semester in the spring to just be like, hey, like, 
We like you guys don't have any shows going, so we're gonna sit, pull out some multi tracks of old shows, and mix some stuff, and just play around with things. And I found that I very much like the mentoring side of things, so that's really appealed to me is to get to talk to them and say like, okay, cool, like, oh, this is what you're interested in. We have an alumni who does that. Let's get them in here. And so that that's been a lot of fun for me. I I enjoy being the middleman. But yes, I I have been unemployed in the thirty year old, and my parents well. And we're supposed to go back in October, so that's the help. So it'll be about 18 months, which I am so ready to go back and mix the show. I yeah. can't even tell you. I miss that so much. But you, like, probably went, like, hardcore out of school. Like, you could have used a break. You know, it's not... Yes. Right? Yes. That's that's the other thing is that... Um, so I'm... The next blog that I'm doing is about just kind of the realities of touring life and the pros mm-hmm. and cons. And in that, I talk about that... Just on a whim, I did a calculation of with the limited amount of time you have off on tour and how that correlates to people just having weekends off in a normal nine to five job. How much time could I take off and just have it be considered my weekends? And I found that I average. So if you have 104 days off as a normal nine to five job, um, touring people or at least my average has been about 70 to 75 days off a year. Wow. So it was like, great, I can take about a month off per year of touring and it'll still be my weekends. So that's basically been the pandemic is just the first seven and a half months were just me catching up on weekends. And so blown through weekends, we've blown through whatever like holiday or paid vacation time people mostly get. So, but yeah, I had been thinking at some point to be like, oh, like I might take a month off or something like that or get to do something. And then this hit and it's just like, cool, I can go about on the long end, two months before I'm like, I am bored out of my mind. I need to get back to work now. Oh, yeah. That's uh, everyone, I guess, in this quiet time evaluated, like, what do I want and what can I handle? And Mm -hmm. lots, lots of time to think. Yes. (laughs) It's like, how does my life work without sound, theater, whatever? How am I okay with this? So one of the things being on tour has helped me save a fair amount and that that's been the one kind of saving grace of touring is that most people kind of had that thought of like some grand vacation where they take a year off and just go travel, not for work. Right. So most touring people had at least a fair amount of money saved up so that when the pandemic hit, it wasn't absolute panic. And that that ability to save on tour has led me down a rabbit hole of financial independence. Um, it's a movement in the financial world that's called FIRE. It's financial independent retire early. Ah. So that was always a thing of like, oh, like, yeah, if I can stay on tour for X amount of years, I can save up money and then like maybe go um, like go to New York or to Chicago or someplace that has a big theater presence and work there for a little bit. But like, oh, maybe I can retire by the time retire by the time I'm like 45, 50 ish. And doing this is just like, I'm never going to want to (laughs) retire. I'm going to get so bored that this is no, no, I'm never going to want to do that. So that I consider this kind of a mini retirement. Where it's like, great, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a year and a half of quote unquote retirement. And I've realized that it's just like cool, not for me. Not for me. I like to work. I'm gonna work until I die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, like I like my and the thing is that a lot of people in kind of the financial independence movement are people who are in careers that they don't necessarily like. Right. So being financially independent lets them leave those careers and then they can pursue things that they do enjoy, but might might not be really financially viable as a career. And so that was kind of like, cool, I like my job. I'll be happy to work here as long as somebody wants to keep me employed. This is great. Yeah, that's excellent. 
So Heather, this has been a really, this has been a treat chatting with yeah, you. Is there so much fun. final advice, final words, something we didn't get to talk about? Ways to reach um, you? Ways to reach me? Um, I guess, I don't know. Can you put my email or anything in the? Yeah. You want people to email you? You can, you can say it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, so my email is haugustine at iCloud.com. So that's H-A-U-G-U-S-T-I-N-E at iCloud.com. It, like, if you're interested in this, if you want to talk, if you, I don't know, just want to have a fun conversation about sound. Fine. It's, you can probably find me on Facebook. You might have to search a little bit, but eh, whatever. And then, yeah, the blogs are, that's a good way to figure out most of what I think about sound and stuff like that. But parting advice, probably like, I've noticed that the main theme to my blogs has just been be nice to yourself, be kind, find things that you enjoy and do those, but make sure you're happy and just be nice. Love it. This has been a joy. Yeah, you're great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Our mission is to create a community for women in audio and music production, providing the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Stephanie Brown, a sound editor and dialogue and ADR supervisor, known for her work on The Incredible Hulk, 8 Mile, A Wrinkle in Time, and many others. Working on The Matrix was probably my favorite because at the time, we didn't know what that movie was going to be, but we knew something was going to happen. And to see the phenomenon that movie became was amazing. And then to be involved in the sequels, it's still the highlight of my career is just being involved in that. Be sure and catch the full interview with Stephanie Brown, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. If you're looking for more to listen to, check out what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you. Immersive Audio Podcast, a podcast that explores all things immersive audio. We talk to thought leaders covering the art, science, and business of this fast-changing industry. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app.